morning, church. Wonderful to be here with you today. Um, if you could open your Bibles with me to the ninth chapter of Isaiah. And uh, then would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. We do this as an acknowledgement that God is himself speaking to us here today through his word. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are present here with us today. What a majestic truth it is to proclaim that you, the mighty God, the Lord of glory, are here with us according to your grace. As we look to your word, please guard me from error. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will shine the light of the gospel in the hearts of those who hear this message about your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to dwell on and to cherish the wonderful truth about the birth of Christ and grant us comprehension of what this means for our lives, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, reconciling us to you. And through this God-man alone, Jesus Christ, we can be made right before God. So, Lord, by your gospel, will you sanctify and strengthen the hearts of those who love you? And won't you soften and save the hearts of those who do not know you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, to each of you, each and every one of you here this morning, I greet you in the name of our risen Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and I proclaim to you peace and joy. To our guests here today, we welcome you here to this church. And uh, I, I hope that you'll enjoy your, your time with us and that the Word of God will indeed minister and be impressed upon your hearts. So each one of us here today has lived through a number of Christmases, some I have to say a few more than others. Uh, but uh, what, we, what we have in common is a risk of immunization against what Christmas really means. We've heard this particular message, I think, many, many times. But if I could ask you an important question, it would be this. Do you have a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of delight, a sense of glory when you hear this Christmas story each year? Do you make room at the center of your heart, at the center of your home, for God's Son? Jesus Christ, who is the Christmas gift to us. I think it makes sense why we usually do not. There are so many layers of confusion that surround this time of year. If we're honest, the loneliness and the humility of a stable in Bethlehem, the birth of Christ, the gifts of true value given by the wise men, the angels, the wise men, the silence of the night, and the revealing of God's glory. All of these things have been clouded out a bit by consumerism, by partying, by noise, by drunkenness, by reindeer, by tinsel, and maybe worst of all, by Santa Claus. 
But graciously, God has given us a perfect cure for all of this confusion, the clarity of Scripture. And today we are turning to the very source of the truth about Christmas. As always, I counted a supreme and completely unearned joy and blessing from the Lord to be able to share the word with you. And I've titled the sermon for today, For unto us a child is born, the dawning of the light and of peace with God. The great news of Christmas is that the all-sovereignty all is set squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. As the Nicene Creed phrases it, He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. And the purpose of this wonderful news is twofold. One, that glory to God would be in the highest would be proclaimed. And two, that there would be peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. As David Platt rightly notes, the most offensive claim in Christianity is that God is the creator, the owner, and the judge of every single person who has ever lived. But when we look at Christmas, when we understand what this means, that it proves the love of God and demonstrates how God went to infinite lengths to reveal himself to us in a way that we could know him personally. When we understand this, the claim goes from being offensive to being a source of great joy. The Christmas message is that this sovereign God of the universe actually loved each one so much that he would send his son to identify with sinful flesh and in humility become nothing and be offered up as a sacrifice on behalf of us to save us from our sin. And as we sang earlier, in Joy to the World, He rules the world with truth and grace. This makes His kingship, His creatorship, His lordship, His judgeship joyous, because we can love and we can trust and we can obey the kind of God who would do that for us. So if you have some kind of longing in your heart this Christmas for something that the world cannot satisfy, might this not be God's Christmas gift to you, preparing you to see who Jesus Christ really is? He is consolation and he is redemption. Perhaps this longing is the call that comes to us saying, let every heart prepare him room. I know that for some of us here today, we might be at the end of our rope. We might be desperate. Life has not worked out as planned. Uh, friends have abandoned us. Family has failed us. Jobs have failed us. We may be afraid. We may be anxious. We may be lonely. But I love these words of John MacArthur's. And when you are desperate, you need power. In the hour of need, all Christmas has to offer is Jesus Christ. And He is utterly sufficient. Only He can fill the heart with hope in this time of doubt. Only He can fill the heart with lasting joy in this time of sadness. Only He can fill the heart with peace in a time of fear. 
When life reaches its moments of desperation, the only hope is Christ. But what is it about Christ that gives us this hope? What is it about Christ that gives us this joy in times of deep sadness? What is it about Christ that gives us peace in the face of anxiety? It's one simple look at the birth of Christ that should tell us the answer to that question. And that, my friends and family, my brothers and sisters, that is what we are going to do here today. So I think we all know the familiar words of the the Christmas carol saying, O come, let us adore him. And that is what our text today calls us to do. We're currently in the period called Advent, which just means coming. It is the time of celebration of the arrival of the Son of God into the world. It is the vertical mission of God in Jesus Christ to us. And what this means is that God has sent his Son reconciling man to himself. From another famous carol, we hear these words. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That is the vertical mission. God becoming, entering his own creation. And now, because of that vertical mission in Christ, There is a horizontal mission from God, and that is the ministry of God through Christ in the church and in the the individuals who make up the church who share the gospel. We've been given this horizontal mission, the, the, the Great Commission, which is to go out preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. Now, I'd like you to think about something for a moment. Throughout history... What claim has caused people to be martyred? It's the claim that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And it's the very same thing with missionaries. Tens of thousands of missionaries have been killed in the mission field or have perished from starvation or disease in the ministry of sharing the gospel. And why have they been prepared to die for this claim? It is because they believe the gospel that they are preaching. They have had their eyes open to the truth. They were were willing to lay down their lives because Christ had laid down his life for them. They've experienced the grace of forgiveness of sins. They've beheld the glory of God. They have known the preciousness of life in Christ, the sweetness of peace with God, and the assurance of eternal life. What did we sing just now? That no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Wow. Even death. They knew that they were going to be with the Lord. They knew that they would be sharing in his glory, living in the joy of his presence forever. Missionaries go out into the world to share the light because God first shed it abroad in their hearts. They were propelled into the mission field because sinners are dangling over the precipice of hell. And they had the urgency to bring the saving news of the gospel. And they counted the cost of doing so to be nothing in the face of bringing life and light. Let's contrast this for a moment with ISIS or the terrorists. 
Blowing yourself up to kill innocent people is not martyrdom, it's murder. It's not courage and faith, it's depravity. They do not die under threat of persecution for uh, clinging to the truth and the light that is in their hearts. They are not on a mission to bring peace from God. They haven't died for their faith. They have merely presented themselves before the throne of God's judgment. Oh, what a contrast in the light of the people of God who are sent as ministers of reconciliation, proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So with this in mind, remembering the hope of the gospel, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? Verses 21 to 23 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. See, Christmas celebrates that God took on human flesh which we call the incarnation. This is God making himself known to us. Into a tortured world of sin was born the light of the world. Into the darkness, light. Into mourning, joy. Into brokenness, healing. Into hatred, love. Into chaos, order. Into conflict, peace. Into blindness, sight. Into confusion, clarity. Into deceitfulness, truth. And into despair, hope. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 says that he has spoken in these last days by his Son, who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. This is the substance of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is God. John Piper says it this way, The truth is that, as the angel said, this is Jesus who will save his people from their sins. And as the prophet said, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. The truth is, what you have in the birth of Christ is a Savior who is God in human form. He entered our sin-polluted world without being tainted by it. And he took our guilt, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was raised up for our justification. He ascended to intercede for us, to prepare for us a place, and will return again to take us to be with him forever. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. Now, I'm, I'm preaching on the topic of Jesus' birth against a backdrop that is not unsurprising, but very, very sad. 
a few weeks ago, a famous so-called preacher who has 40,000 people attending his network of churches and reaches several million people through his online presence, has come rightfully under fire from faithful and uh, Bible-believing churches. He made the claim that the truth of the Bible is not the basis of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Now, that might sound like a wise one-liner to you, but I caution you against anyone whose wisdom seems to ride on one-liners. The reason being is that biblical truth is a unified whole. It is not a list of Instagram posts. And now you will see whilst it's true that the object of our faith is not the Bible, it is Jesus Christ, the only way, the God-appointed way by which we may know the truth, defend the truth, proclaim the truth, and justify the truth is by the Scriptures, which testify to the resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. This man's claim is that people don't really trust the Bible. So if we focus on the resurrection, we'll be able to reach more people with God and the gospel. Uh, This sounds like evangelistic concern, but it's actually plain trickery. Despite the fact that it blatantly rejects exactly what the apostles did and what Jesus Christ himself did as making scripture the basis for the claims that he made um, in, in his preaching very often, Um, It sets you up for a rapid slide from the truth. And sadly, last week, a few days ago, he's done it again. This week, he said that if Jesus rose from the dead, it doesn't really matter how he entered the world. And the truth of the resurrection isn't the thing on which Christianity hinges. It doesn't matter. Really. The truth about Christ's birth doesn't matter. Wow. But it does matter. It does hinge in part, and in a very important manner, on the truth of the incarnation. The resurrection cannot be uh, disconnected from the crucifixion, which cannot be disconnected from the life of Jesus Christ, which cannot be disconnected from the birth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because who he is, how he was born, how he lived his life, and how he died are all key to the relevance of the fact that he rose from the dead. Let's look at this more carefully. When Adam and Eve sinned and fell into sin, humanity fell and they came under the curse of disobedience, which was that if they ate the, truth, uh, the, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. Their rebellion against God catapulted the whole of humanity into enmity with God. And I'm going to borrow here just a a brief excerpt from our exposition a few weeks ago. Um, So if you remember me saying this, it's, it's just worth hearing again because of its relevance today. Mankind has many problems. Poverty, hunger, drought, cruelty, disease, corruption, lying and greedy politicians, natural disasters, and the list goes on. But there is one problem for mankind that towers above the rest making them meaningless in scale. This problem is God's holiness. God's holiness is a problem for mankind because mankind is sinful and, his, and God's holiness requires the punishment of sin. And this sin is not merely collective. It's not just humanity as a group. It's individual. Each of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And Romans 3.23 tells us that, um, that, that very fact. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Ezekiel 18.20 tells us that the soul that sins shall die. But God, being rich in mercy and in loving kindness, resolved to save sinners and to call to himself a redeemed people. He resolved to extend his grace to men in sin and to bring them to new life in Jesus Christ. But in order to do so, the penalty for sin must be paid. God is so supremely and infinitely holy. His law is so perfect that when sin is committed against him, it is an infinite offense. Exodus 34 states it succinctly, he will by no means clear the guilty. Why? Because somebody who lets someone go for something they did when they did it with no punishment is corrupt. I've given you the example before of the judge. Let's say I was appearing before a judge and I've committed an act of rape. And the judge says, I'm in a good mood today. You can go. I would be, I would be ripped from the bench. I would be corrupt. I would be unjust. I would be unfit for that position. And so it is with God. He is holy and just. But in order to pay the penalty for sin, only a perfect sacrifice could be sufficient. Why? Well, how could that which is tainted, that which is unholy, that which is in itself sinful, be offered up in place of sin to satisfy the wrath of God against that very sin? It cannot and this is why in the Old Testament, the lamb that had to be offered, taken to the altar, had to be spotless. It was a prefiguring of the fact that a spotless Savior, a perfect Savior, a sinless Savior, would die for mankind. As we uh, mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews 10.14, I don't know if that's still up on a banner, no it's not. But it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. So what about the Old Testament sacrifice took away sins? Was it the sacrifice? Does anyone know? It was the object of the sacrifice. They did not know that the object of the sacrifice was Jesus Christ and that the prophetic picture was veiled in the, in the, in the death of an animal. But that animal was meaningless before God. It looked forward to the sacrifice that would be made of Jesus Christ and there has been no change in the way by which anyone has been saved throughout the whole of history. It has always been by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they did not know that the object of their faith was the Lord Jesus Christ, but nevertheless it was. And so, this is why John the Baptist, upon seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, could say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins. And how was it that he was spotless? You guessed it, it had to do with his birth. Jesus could not have been born like the rest of humanity as those born in original sin. He had to be born as a new federal head, as a new representative of mankind. He had to be born with a human nature conceived by the Holy Spirit. And since he was untouched by sin, and since he was God in the flesh, he lived a sinless life that we could not live. So that when he was crucified, 
he could rightly bear our sin. God crushed him on our behalf with our sin. But not only that, not just because of his sin, because of his sinless nature, he perfectly fulfilled God's law. He lived out positive righteousness for us. He didn't just die to remove sin from us. He lived a perfect life in order that he could earn the righteousness for us. The righteousness that we would have had in obedience to the law, which we could not keep. He lived for us in that very righteousness. And that's why we say he was imputed our sin. Our sin was counted to him. And we were imputed his righteousness. His righteousness was counted to us. For believers, he counted our sin against Christ himself and counted his righteousness for us. Our sin is alienated from us and we receive an alien righteousness. Now, none of that would be possible if the biblical story about the birth of Christ were not true. So I hope you can see that the narrative about the birth of Christ is important. It's vital, but it's also wonderful and it's gracious and it's glorious. Now, with that in mind, let's just begin to look at the meaning and the effect of the birth of Jesus. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And in verses 11 to 14, we read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There is perhaps no better way to describe God's purpose in sending his son than this. His glory and our peace. He glorifies himself in the sending of his son by entering his very creation and by saving sinners. Through his, and he, in the process of doing so, he establishes peace among a people of his own name. Now, you might have noticed here the similarity between our, our main text today and the verses we have just read. It's because this text is the New Testament exposition of the Old Testament text that says, For unto us a child is born, and, the government, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this baby is described as Savior, Christ, and Lord. He's barely out of the womb, and he is declared to be the Redeemer, the Messiah, and the Ruler. Savior means he is Redeemer. He is the one who saves sinners, rescuing them from the very wrath of God and bringing them eternal life. Christ means he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the long-awaited one. And he is also the final prophet, priest, and king. The fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of, and the promises to the Jews. Lord means he is ruler, 
He is the one who is sovereign over all the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords, mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is the savior who removes our guilt. He is the Christ who fulfills our hopes and desires. He is the Lord who makes our, uh, defeats our enemies and makes a place for us in his kingdom forever. So I pray today that you would see that this Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. So the main point of peace. In the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. Five times. Twice in Romans and once each in uh, Philippians, Thessalonians, and Hebrews. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. And we really need to pay attention to the point being made here, which is that the peace of God cannot be separated from the person of God. You cannot have peace from God without God. The desire to do so is one of the many types of wickedness and idolatry we naturally have in our hearts. We want to have the benefits of God, but we, we do not want to have God himself. That is how we're born, at enmity with God. But in his great goodness, he gives us himself. And with him, his peace, his joy, his forgiveness, his love, his patience, and his kindness. This is glory to God, that he would be loved by his people, and that his name would be proclaimed among the nations. And in doing so, that there would be peace on earth for all who are his people. Now, this peace is not merely the earthly sense in which we, we speak about the absence of conflict or the absence of war. But it is the actual positive presence of joy, of communion, and of love. The Bible teaches that God's peace is designed to extend to three realms, three relationships. Firstly, God with man. Secondly, man with self. And thirdly, man with others. From the moment we are born, our greatest need is peace with God. Romans 8.17 says that we are at enmity with God and cannot submit to his law. Apart from Christ, we're under God's judgment. But as we mentioned earlier, there, there is great news, the glorious message that for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He lived a sinless life, and he was put to death carrying the weight of the sin of all of those who came to trust in his name and will come to trust in his name. And by his sacrifice that he made for us, we may be reconciled to God and have peace with him. God's anger at the sin of these people is turned away from us and it is placed on Christ. See, the one with whom we need peace is also the one from whom we have it. And so by him, we are adopted forever into the family and of the household of God by faith. What glorious news. The Bible phrases it this way in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means we are declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of the sinless perfection of Christ and and his death on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And so we are justified by faith in Jesus alone, not by anything that we can do, not by our works, not by our own attempts to earn righteousness before God, not by our wealth, but by our faith alone in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not by lineage, not by position, not by parentage, not by the outward keeping of rules, not by your political influence, but by faith alone. The result of all this is peace with God. He is our Father, and never again will His wrath be turned toward us. I hope you all see the parallel there in the Old Testament with the flood. Jesus sent the rainbow as a sign that he would never again flood the earth. And so it is with those who come to know Jesus Christ, that they have the blood, the covenant um, that God has made with us, that he will never again turn his wrath towards those who have believed. And, uh, and now, as a result of that, we are, we are, we are adopted. Ephesians uh, 1 says that, we're, that, we are, that before the foundation of the world, we, we were predestined as, uh, for adoption as sons. And Ephesians 2.16 says, You who were once off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Is that not wonderful? The safest place in the universe is in the bosom of the most dangerous being in the universe. Secondly, God's peace extends to man's relationship with himself. What naturally flows from peace with God is being able to have peace with ourselves. A consequence of our fallen nature is that we do not have peace with ourselves, and everyone sitting in this room knows about that. Each of us has likely struggled with one or all of guilt, shame, anxiety, distress, self-loathing. It's crippling. It robs us of hope, and it robs us of joy. To each of you here, if you are born again, up until the moment you were born again, you were terrorized by your conscience. Whether you acknowledged it at at the time, subsequently you would have realized that that is what had happened. Your conscience testified to your sinfulness, and you knew it, and you covered it up. But in the light of Scripture, this was revealed to you, and you experienced freedom, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, uh, see, when we, when we understand that God is sovereign over all things, when we, when we trust in His wisdom, when we are born again by the Spirit, we can have peace, we can have rest. This is why the Lord says to us through Paul in Philippians 4.67, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This means because of being right with God, we can literally put our anxieties on Christ. We can cast all of our cares on Him. What a sweet experience 
for those who are believing. And what a sweet promise this is for those who are not. So I exhort you this Christmas, come to Christ and be reconciled to him. And then share your brokenness with him and let his peace, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, the third realm to which this extends is peace of man with man. The Lord, through Paul, says to us in Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why is it expressed this way? Well, I think we have all experienced that there's only so much that we can control (laughs) as to whether there is peace in our relationships. We woefully underestimate how much that control is, but it's still true. And so it's, it's up to us, as far as we can, to live peaceably with all. And it is the peace of God which gives us the power to do so. In this room, I am sure that there are many of us who have broken personal uh, or family or, or business or marital relationships. And for many of you, it seems that there's no hope. Is this not part of the Christmas message that hope has been made available to those who look upon the Son of God who was born to us and who trust in Him? See, this, this Christmas season is going to present for many of us some really awkward and uncomfortable and sometimes even painful encounters. And it's understandable that our, our fleshly instinct is to to draw away, to shy away from all of these. Perhaps you are the instigator and you're recognizing that you're at fault. Or perhaps you are the one who was hurt. Either way, we're often prone to question this. Why should I care? Well, if you have received the grace of God, eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, if you have received this free gift of righteousness, then a natural consequence of this should be to extend grace to others. This is why Matthew 5.5 5 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Even though you may, know exactly, or you may not know exactly what the root to this peace will be, ask God for wisdom. Be amazed that Jesus Christ came himself to mediate peace between you and God. And then, as far as it depends on you, represent this to the people in your life. See, because despite all you and I have done, God has made provision for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Should you not do the same for others? This is phrased beautifully in Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What is important to remember is that whilst God's offer of peace is to mankind, it goes out to all, it will only be experienced by those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah, and as their Lord. And how do you become one of these people? 
to whom the angels promised peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, you welcome the peacemaker himself. You receive Jesus for who he is and who he says he is, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And finally, this advent, this coming of Christ into the world, should cause us to think about the fact that Christ will return again. But the the nature of this return will be substantially different to the first. Christ first came to slay the sin that was in men. But when he returns, he will slay the men who are in sin. He came at first to proclaim the peace of God in the gospel. But when he returns, it is called the day of judgment. For on that day, the unbeliever will not survive a moment before God's holiness. In fact, in Revelation, I think it's 6, it says that they will run into the caves and cry out for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath from the face of the Lamb. But for the believer, it will be the realization of all the promises, hopes, and dreams of his soul. For the unbeliever, the holiness of God is the greatest terror and threat. But for the believer, the holiness of God is the sweetest delight. So my plea to you today is, do not be found in sin on that day. Repent of unrighteousness and trust in Jesus Christ that he will give you his and you shall be saved. So as we move to to conclude... Our text again was, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is it not incredible that the uncontainable God, the infinite God, the eternal God was pleased to dwell in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? This is why Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the, f- the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The uncontainable contained in the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. And the humility of this Christmas story is so beautifully uh, captured by St. Augustine. He was a church father uh, in the 4th century He said that the word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh and born in time for us. He, without whose divine permission, not one day completes its course, wished to have one of those days for his human birth. In the bosom of his Father, he existed before all the cycles of the ages. And then, born of an earthly mother, entered on the course of the years on that very day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way might be wearied on the journey, that he, the truth, 
may be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal and wicked judge. That he, justice itself, may be condemned by the unjust. That he, discipline personified, might be scourged with the tails of a whip. That the foundation might be suspended on the cross. That he, courage incarnate, might be weak. And he, security itself, might be wounded. And he, life itself, might die. I encourage you to weigh the claims that have been made today. For each one of you, I I challenge you to honestly commit yourself to answering this question. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he a fictional character in a heartwarming nativity story? Is he merely a symbol of peace? Is he just a wise teacher? Was he just a prophet? Or is he God in human flesh, the Lord of the heavens and the earth? Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Love Personified. Each one of us must answer this question. It's impossible to remain neutral. Please do not go away from here without knowing where you stand. If you've, if you've not believed the biblical testimony about Christ, then I pray that as you reflect on God's word today, that you would see what each Christian throughout the ages has seen, that Jesus is God, the Christ. And if you have doubts and questions, then do not despair. I encourage you to engage with God's word and the people who believe it, who know it, and who cherish it. I am confident that the truths of Scripture being breathed out by God, having stood all the tests of the ages, and are now available to you, are the very words of God. And the evidence that you are seeking for will be found therein by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian and you believe these truths, then I pray that you would be thrilled once again by the great drama of this Advent. How great it is to celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, our God, with us. And that this would stir up joy and worship in your hearts. And if you've seen today that the birth of the Christmas story is is true for the first time, if God's Spirit has borne witness to you of the truth of the birth of Christ, His death and His resurrection, then I say to you that to become a Christian is not merely to pray some prayer. It is not to walk down this aisle. To become a, or to invite Jesus into your heart. But it is to, to turn from your sin and to embrace the full claims of the risen Jesus Christ. It means to repent of your sin and to receive the person and the work of this Jesus Christ. That means to embrace and to celebrate His Lordship over your life. To love Him and to trust Him for His righteousness alone. And this is why we sing, Let every heart prepare Him room. And so, 
If you have any questions about this text today or any matter that is weighing upon your heart, please do not leave without speaking to an elder or myself. Some of us will be right here at the front after we have prayed together and we have closed the service. Um, You can do so after we are going to sing uh, Joy to the World. And uh, then please feel free to come and speak to anyone. Let's bow our heads as we close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the gift of your Son. What immeasurable grace that you would provide for your people the free gift of righteousness that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ, alone. 2,016 years ago, your Son entered the world in order that we may have peace with you. We can't understand the true depth of your grace in making a way for us to be reconciled to you. But we thank you. I pray that each person here would come to know that peace. That through trusting in your Son, they may be made right with you. And for each of those who already trust in your Son, that you would bless them with the joy of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Would you fill each heart with the hope of the gospel and continually remind each one of us that this Christmas season points towards the dawning of the light and peace with God, Jesus Christ. To you be all glory in the heavens and on the earth. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are dismissed.